Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, Sesame Street puppeteer, Kathy Kim. Like the 80 million or so other Americans who've watched the show since its inception, I grew up wondering how to get to Sesame Street. When I discovered that my friend and one-time Mr. Rogers and me researcher, Kathy Kim, was the puppeteer behind the show's first Asian-American Muppet, Ji Young, I thought, of course. And when she showed up for our conversation wearing a Mr. Rogers t-shirt, I thought, of course. This is who Kathy is. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and Sesame Street were the twin pillars of my childhood, some of the only shows we were allowed to watch. Together, they shaped my understanding of what it meant to be in the world. Letters and numbers, sure. Life lessons, too. Kindness. Compassion. Community. Sesame Street premiered on public broadcasting in November 1969, just 16 or so months after The Neighborhood, in an effort to, quote, master the addictive qualities of television and do some good with them. The Children's Television Workshop's 4,500-plus episodes represent a high-water mark for how we use our public airwaves. Like Mr. Rogers, Sesame Street represents the best in us, kindness, compassion, neighborliness, which is how I think of Kathy, who I met in New York City back in the early aughts and who helped Chris and I make our documentary. In this week's extraordinary episode, Kathy tells us how she got to Sesame Street. From Woodside, Queens to Brooklyn College, Nickelodeon to History Channel, and finally becoming the front woman of the best friend band, with Elmo and Abby Cadabby. Kathy takes us inside her Sesame Street audition, talks about meeting Carol Spiney, AKA Big Bird, beating breast cancer, developing her guitar playing, skateboarding character, puppeteering with Tom Hanks, and marching in the Macy's Day Parade. Kathy and I begin in Queens, New York, circa 1989. I was born to two Korean immigrants, and I grew up in Woodside, Queens. We lived in like a one-bedroom apartment, spoke mostly Korean at home. Back in the day, before there was a million different kids' TV options like there are today, it was PBS pretty much. And so I was Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers all day, er day. Queens is super diverse, is now, was back then. And so grew up with like a lot of kids from different countries, spoke different languages. And then in 86, my parents made the move to the suburbs. Mm. And then it was a different story then. (laughs) It was uh, definitely the minority for the first time in my life. And just being cognizant of being different from the mainstream. Did you notice the sort of lack of representation when you were in New York City? Or was it really just when you moved to the suburbs? Well, I'll tell you, this was like a memory I had shared with Sesame Street. I don't know if you grew up watching Sesame Street too, but there was like a video, like an interstitial of two girls playing with a dollhouse. And the song was like, one, two, two little dolls, one, two, two little chairs, two little dolls, two little chairs, a little dollhouse, whatever. And so one of the girls was white blonde and the other one was Asian. Mm. And even back in Queens, even growing up with other kids of different ethnicities, it was weird for me to see an Asian girl on TV doing a normal banal thing. 
that in my four-year-old, five-year-old mind, I can remember thinking, my gosh, that white girl looks so Asian. Like she could be Asian Mm. because I didn't think that they would actually put like an Asian kid on TV doing a normal thing. When you see an Asian person on TV, it was, there was a reason for them being Asian. Either they tick off a box, but more often in the eighties, they have a funny accent. They fill a stereotype, but they're not just like a normal kid. Like I was, you know, that was like an early memory of feeling like they don't put people like me on TV. Moving out to the suburbs, suddenly you feel very aware of how different you are, that your parents don't speak English, that you speak differently to your parents than your white friends spoke to their parents. Your house smells differently than theirs does and your food looks different. I have a memory of my parents making sure that I understood that I was not American because to be American Mm. in their eyes is to be white. And we're not totally accepted here unless we work twice as hard and keep our heads down. Like that, that's how we were raised. Yeah. And I think that's how most, like, honestly, like immigrants of color raise their kids too. It's like, it's part of survival. It's like, don't make waves, work twice as hard, keep your head down. It took a long time into my adult years to accept that my Korean hyphen American identity was valid in and of itself. It took me a Mm. long time. It, It was like a long time of feeling like I was not quite Korean and not quite American. How'd you move through that? You know, I remember reading like a, an essay in college by Amy Tan, who wrote Joy Luck Club mm-hmm, called Mother mm-hmm, Tongue. Mm-hmm. And it was about sort of navigating how she wrote English in her own way, being a Chinese American writer. And it was like, whoa. And it kind of blew my mind because like up until that point, I related to my Korean friends in a different way, but I didn't realize that it was like it spread beyond my little group of friends that like we were all kind of like in some way having the same sort of experience. And that was the first time I thought to explore that idea that being Asian American was its own sort of valid subculture it's still something that I explored today, even like as recently as listening to David Chang's podcast, he has a lot of Asian Americans on as guests and they Mm -hmm. talk in a way that like, I totally understand. And and it feels validating for me in a way that like I haven't had growing up. It's just figuring out how to be white as possible in order to fit in. (laughs) In essence, assimilation. That's why like the racism against Asian Americans is different from like black Americans or, or Latino Americans. If we kind of water it down, we're sort of light skinned enough that we keep our head down. We can sort of move through and succeed. But, you know, definitely the past few years have, has highlighted that that's not the case and that we should just be proud and, and fight against racism in all forms so that we can just be here, belong here while being ourselves, you know, true to our own cultures. The hypocrisy of this country Was it just always apparent to you? No, I didn't think of it as being unfair as a kid. I just thought, this is just how it is. You know, my character, Chi Young, she's Korean American and a new character in Sesame Street. We had this special highlighting both racism against like Asians in America, but also celebrating the diversity of the Asian American diaspora. There's a moment in the beginning of the special where she experiences racism. Some kid off camera tells her, go back home, like go back where you came from. And I remember Matt Vogel, he is the puppet captain. He directs a lot of the episodes. He also plays Big Bird and now Kermit. He was co-directing the special. 
And he was just trying to get me to like, sort of, how would you react to like, did this happen to you as a kid? And how, how did you react? And I'm like, I don't know if you're looking for some sort of like external response to this kind of a thing that you're not going to find it. It wasn't like we were like, hey, that's wrong. That's racist. Or we're like, I'm so scared. That's terrible. You just kind of like hear it and absorb it. And just that's it. For me, I just could only speak for myself. It's just part of being different and accepting, which is wrong now (laughs) when you think about it now. Yeah. But as a kid, I remember very much feeling like racism is wrong, but it was always against like other people, like learning about like the civil rights movement. Now, I don't know if I counted myself in that, you know? Right. Uh, So I knew that there was like unfairness in America, but for lack of a better term, as a kid, it feels very like like a black and white issue. Those experiences in your adolescence, were they a catalyst for your approach to going to school and specifically studying children's studies and television, it seems like you were kind of hip on where you were headed and what you wanted to address. It was outside of that. I think it was just like, uh, I loved Sesame and it felt like it was such a big influence, not only in teaching ABCs, one, two, threes, but like also humor and music and arts and talking about friendships. And I just felt like I wanted to be a part of that and teaching other generations how to be smart and, and fun and musical and artistic and all that stuff. I just wanted to be part of that. And a part of a community, right? Which, I mean, is so explicit in the special that you guys created coming together. And it sounds like community was also a real healer because you, you, you said when you first began to really understand that you weren't alone in the racism that you were experiencing was from your peer group, from your community, right? community is everything because if you can get to a place where there is a group of people that you don't have to explicitly say the things that you've experienced, but they just inherently know, that's key to feeling like I belong here. I'm not crazy. My experience is valid. And that's everything. To have a group that just gets you um, because they've had the same experiences is super important. These are the things that bring us together, these shared things. Right. That's why we see a lot of like uh, tight knit Korean church communities because it's like a, a place for people who have like, you know, immigrated here to sort of like click into a group, a community. You go from school to PAing at Nickelodeon, at which point you're a pro social PA. I felt like super lucky to be there because, you know, there's plenty of places in any sort of like kids cable network where you're just trying to, you know, sell a show, sell a product, sell a toy. We'd have our like Black History Month spots. Let's just play Go Healthy Challenge interstitials about keeping healthy and active. So it was great. I loved it. And that's where I met you. What are the key sort of takeaways from a story standpoint or from a process standpoint that you carry with you from those early gigs? Reality TV when I started, it was still pretty new and rapidly growing industry. At the time, a lot of the people who landed there did not go to school or like go into nonfiction reality TV because it didn't really exist. But suddenly there was like a ton of jobs there. In 2008, there was a big recession and like literally everybody lost their jobs, including myself and my entire pro-social team. I was there at Viacom Nickelodeon for a few years and it was like, at least a biannual sort of happening of like some kind of mass layoff. But I was part of 
the biggest one. I think they like laid off like a thousand people in one day. Yes, I remember that well. Yes. Luckily, a friend of a friend was hiring like sort of an entry level thing for for nonfiction TV. And, and then I just kind of like ended up continuing on that trajectory because there was so much work and luckily I enjoyed it. The puppet stuff. So much of what we do is in like a group situation. We never get rehearsal time where all these bodies like smashed together just below the frame. Sometimes you'll say like, actually, if you sit here, then I can get my arm over here. But honestly, a lot of it is clicking into like a hive mind mm. like very quickly. So I think maybe that's what it is. I am able to sort of assess the vibe very quickly. That is hard to quantify. It's just like, I'm really good at being friends and being a nice person to work with. It's like a useful trait I found. <laughs> it's kept me employed for many years. It's interesting too, because it connects to two of the other topics we just touched on, which are community, as well as some sense of like understanding the roles that we play to fit in. And that's not to say that you're necessarily understanding or playing them, but that you're sensitive to, cognizant of, and sort of tuned into those frequencies. Does that resonate? That's a fancier way of saying it, but yeah. Because <laughs> like, like, honestly, when, you know, when I, I, I have... <laughs> Uh, a very low self-esteem. And so anytime somebody's like, oh, what like, w- what do you bring to this? I'm like, I don't know. I don't think of myself as like, say, the strongest editor or the strongest writer. I don't think I'm the strongest puppeteer. I know not by, not by miles, but why do I keep getting hired for things? And I think it's because like, I am a hard worker. I get along very well. I pick things up. And that's what it is. It's just kind of clicking into having the sensitivity to like sort of click into the vibe and like be able to communicate it back. You're literally like one of six real people who worked on (laughs) Mr. Rogers (laughs) and me. It was Chris and me mostly, and then you and one other person who helped, and then two guys who my brother knew who did basically sound and picture. It's shake and bake, and I helped. Like, it was you and your brother really put your hearts and souls into it. I was just super happy to just help a little bit. I was thinking this when you were describing what you bring to the party which is this sense of like shared humanity. Not everybody has access to like what connects us and, and how we are in relation to one another. Do you know what I mean? I've worked with people who you just have no idea what the rest of their MO is or who's outside of that lens or filter that they've given you. I'll say I'm a nice person, but I think what you said <laughs> was a lot fancier than that. I remember when we first met in the lobby of the 1515, it was through our common friend, John Rosenblatt. Rosie, yeah. Who, yeah, John Rosie, who was directing a pro-social campaign when I was at Nickelodeon. And I was with him at some edit session. I think it was like Mr. Rogers' birthday. And so someone had declared a cardigan day. Mm-hmm. And so I said, where's your cardigan, Rosie, or something? And, yeah. and then it got to us talking about Mr. Rogers. And then he's actually like one of my very good friends is working on a doc. Um, like, I would love to help. <laughs> can I help? You know, because he's like, he's doing it on his own dime and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, can I, can I transcribe stuff or can I make phone calls? I'll, I'll help, you know? It was my pleasure, honestly. Even just having watched it outside of working on it, even if I had just watched it without knowing you and your brother, this is going to sound like hyperbolic, but it, it really was life-changing. You know, I feel like it did change. Oh, no, it's truly, you know, I always love Mr. Rogers, but sort of putting the focus on his messaging and how it translates to the way that we should treat people 
like it really made me think about the way that I wanted to be around people and mm-hmm. how to treat people. And so it really was life-changing. Ah, uh, well, me too. It feels like an ongoing thing. I'm still turning over the rock to try and make sense of it all, right? Because it's a lifelong pursuit. Those values, even if it's pretty simple, right? I think it's service and spirituality and some idea of just not being enticed by the stuff. You know, Fred just wasn't about the stuff, right? The best things in life are the things that we experience with one another. Mm. But the connections that it created in friendships like this one, you know, it's one of the reasons why I was was just like so excited. Like, oh my gosh. Like, I mean, in my fantasy, I don't know if I ever told you this, the end of the movie was me quitting MTV. That's why we shot that really hacky exterior at the beginning of the movie. Because I never say MTV because I was afraid they were going to fire me. I just got <laughs> chills when you said that. Wow. We did a press tour. Like I took a couple of days off and did a press tour where we would like basically put, put it together ourselves. And I came home and fell into my wife's lap sobbing for two reasons. I was thrashed from just doing a week's worth of press, as I suspect you can understand and probably did the same thing. But I was terrified that like someone was going to call and be like, hey, you know, we watched this more closely and you're actually (laughs) saying what we make isn't good. But my fantasy would have been to have left. And I would have, you know, if you said to me, hey, how do you write the ending? I'd be like, well, I go work for PBS. Oh, (laughs) isn't that funny? Yeah. Forget just going to work at Sesame Street. Like you, you were playing a role that is a marker on the history of the planet. You come to Sesame Street in 2014. You walk in day one. What do you see and what do you experience? 2014 was actually the year that I attended a Sesame Street puppeteers workshop that is an audition only three day sort of like a workshop. And I truly submitted a tape like the last second, never thinking that I was going to make it in. I'm a producer. I work in TV. That is my job puppeteering? That is like something other people do for a living. No, 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 no. Like who gets to do that? Like, yeah, sure. I'd like to go into space. I'd like to play for the NBA. It's not going to happen. It's like a nice dream, you know? And so I had taken a class for fun with my husband because he did improv. And so he found this puppetry for improv class. And all those guys in the class were like, oh my gosh, like Sesame Street is taking um, submissions for this workshop. And I'm like, no, I'm not, no, that's for other people. And then at the last second, the thought in my mm. mind, and this is not a kind thing, it's probably not the kindest thing, but I, I was like, I know I'm better than these guys that's at right. puppetry. And if they, right. if they get into 100%. this workshop, I yeah. will regret not having sent in a tape forever. But you didn't keep your head down, Kathy. You took the risk to say, uh-uh. Because it would have been status quo if like all the average dudes got the shot, right? It's true. And so I'm like, why not? You know, like I, I won't get in, but I'll regret not having done it. Right. I remember the first day, cause like most of the people at this workshop, this is what they dreamed of, yeah. but they're actors. I am not an actor. I'm not a performer. <laughs> I'm a normal person. I'm a muggle. I rode up in the elevator with this nice young man. Oh, are you here for the workshop? Yeah. I'm so excited. How about you? Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited. And we go into like the, the conference room where we're all meeting and somebody goes straight up to him and was just like, oh my gosh, I loved you in Avenue Q. You're so great. I'm like, ah, what? Right. What am I doing here? And everybody yeah. seems to know each other. And I'm like, wow. And so anyway, I do this workshop where one of the teachers is Marty Robinson. He plays Telly. He plays Snuffleupagus. He's wow, been there yeah. since like the late 70s with Jim Henson and all those guys. 
He's like, oh, are you Kathy Kim? My daughter's loved your submission tape. And I'm like, what is happening? Yes. Yay. So anyway, at the end of the third day of this workshop, I thought, wow, I got to touch a Muppet. Now I get to go back to my regular life. <laughs> I will never do that again. And then the next year, in 2015, they were shooting season 46. And they called a bunch of people from that workshop to come in for a day or two or three. That first day, I was assisting for Abby Kadabi. And that episode was about making art. And so we're all, you know, the puppets are all at a table drawing and painting. So we're all underneath the table. In this scene is Abby, who I'm assisting, Elmo, Big Bird, Telly Monster, and Grover makes an appearance. He like comes in and out of it. And I just, I'm sitting on the floor on Sesame Street going, what is my life right now? And so then Peter Lintz, who now plays Ernie, he finds like a little feather that fell off of Big Bird, like tiny little feather. And he gives it to me. He's like, here, your kid, you know, have it. So I'm like, oh my gosh. (laughs) And so I run to the green room to shove it into my wallet for safekeeping. And who's in the green room? Carol Spinney and his (sighs) wife, Deb. He wasn't inside Big Bird anymore at this point, but he was throwing lines and Matt Vogel was inside Big Bird live lip syncing. And so he's like, hi. I'm like, I, uh, and I like sputtered something about, I don't want to keep it for safekeeping. And so he's like, oh, that's just a little feather. You should have the full size feather. I'm like, oh, okay, goodbye. And I just like uh, ran, awkwardly ran away. Fast forward a couple hours later, we're on set, like waiting between takes. And I'm sitting on the floor, feel a tap on my shoulder. And it's Carol Spinney mm. bending down to give me a full size feather. And I was like, what? And he's like, and this is a special one too, has silk backing, so it doesn't frame. Like, please stop talking. I'm going to start crying right now. (laughs) And fun fact, I was pregnant with my daughter during that week. And so that feather is hanging up in her nursery. You have a rapid succession of major life events. So you become a mother the next Mm. year, right? Yeah. How do you juggle that stuff? And how does it impact your work in terms of how you approach the work as a mother of a child who will be learning from from this program? I feel like even before I was a mom, I I always felt a connection to kids and childhood and my Mm -hmm. my own childhood Mm -hmm. and wanting to honor that. Because I feel like when I see like commercials of like parents, like surprising their kids, we're a Disney vacation. Like my parents are not, they're very practical, you know? I just feel like I always had like a very strong connection to like the sort of magic of like mm-hmm. childhood, because like maybe it wasn't quite honored as much as like I had, had hopes growing up. And so that was always there. I always worked with kids. I did birthday parties for a long time in my early 20s. And so having a kid myself, it made me connect more not to kids and what their needs are. I feel like I always had that. It's to the parents, because so much right. of like what we produce for kids also has to be received well for the parents sure, and what sure. their needs are. So I think that was like the big shift. And then it was hard because like at that time, I was not a full-time puppeteer. It was still kind of this like thing that I did once in a while for fun. I never thought that this would be a career shift, especially because a lot of the kids who were at that 2014 workshop were very young. You know, Mm -hmm. I was in my mid thirties at the time. And I'm like, I'm not shifting careers now. I'm just starting to be comfortable getting story producer work on a regular basis for me to like... Yeah. Suddenly to think like, I'm going to quit all of this and be an actor. Like, (laughs) who do I think I am? (laughs) And so um, at the time when I had Quinn, I was still freelancing as a producer. And it's tough. Those hours can be really long and late. Totally. 
it was a huge emotional adjustment too, because it was one thing to just be like, call my husband, say, sorry, it's just one of those nights Yeah. to like pumping at midnight with like my edit room with two male editors yeah. <laughs> to make sure that my milk production was continuing. It was really hard, but through that and through this shift into puppetry, a huge part of that is having the support of my husband, Brian. I could not do any of this stuff without him. People are like, oh, how do you do it as a mother? You're juggling this and that. And it's like, I don't do this by myself. Like we have a nanny and I have a supportive husband and we have like friends and, and family, you know, our system is not set up for a mom to just like follow her dreams and like still raise a kid. And then two years later, as if you hadn't had enough going on, you're diagnosed with breast cancer, which yeah. I remember you chronicling just the most gut-wrenching stuff as a person who just loved you and cared about you, oh. even from a couple of clicks, right? Like, can I just read a teensy bit of it? Sure. January, 2018. I'm going to read a sentence or two. I was weak, bald, forgetful. My nails were black and lifting off and I still couldn't raise my left arm. And this goes on for paragraphs. And moreover, in your life, it went on for months. I just wonder if you can help me understand how on earth you showed up for yourself, what sort of strategies and tactics and self-talk like. What do you do when you're alone in the middle of the night and you can't sleep and everything hurts? Uh, you just do it because you have no choice. Like you get a cancer diagnosis. That's something that happens Oof. to other people. That's not, it doesn't happen to yeah. you. And the scariest part was the not knowing. It was between the biopsy where clearly the doctor saw something but couldn't say it because it had not been confirmed, but they knew something. And mm. I knew that they knew something. Yeah, between yeah. that and then my first meeting with deciding the doctors and what my plan was, was the scariest part. It's just uncertainty. Sure. Grappling with your mortality with a baby as a mom, yeah. it was so hard. But after that, honestly, the, the treatment, it's just physical pain and it sucks. Mm. It really sucks. But you do it because you have no choice. And people say, oh, you're so brave. You're so courageous. And you don't feel brave and courageous. Like, what am I going to do? Like sit in a closet and just starve to death, you know? Like you do it because you have to. And it's crazy what a person can get used to and what they'll show up for. You know what I mean? Like people and our will to live and to get better is very strong. Sharing my experiences, it did help. But honestly, it was like as a service because yeah. my friend had breast cancer when she was 27. And I didn't know anything about what she was going through. I think I sent her like yeah. cookies, <laughs> like after her mastectomy. And we were there for her, but like I really truly didn't understand what she was going through. And, and when I was diagnosed, she was sort of like my cancer Sherpa, kind of like setting me up for what was to come. And talking through these experiences and stuff that nobody else, they could all, everybody can empathize and sympathize. But until you've actually lived through it, those are the people, again, going back to community, having cancer, especially as a young person, makes you feel incredibly alone. Mm -hmm. And even though there was such an outpouring from my friends and family, you just feel like, but why me? Why is this happening to me? Sure. And you feel like it's incredibly unfair and you just feel yeah. singled out and alone, like nobody else is going through this. But it's not true. Unfortunately, a lot of young women go through breast cancer. And so for my friends who had gone through it, it was a huge help in making me feel not alone. But it did make me realize how I wasn't there for her. And mm -hmm. so I started posting to just be, well, to update my friends because it was just easier than to like send out yeah, a million emails. Yeah, yeah. 
and talk about this bummer thing like a million times a day. But also it was like in service of people who have other friends. I'm like, I'm not the last person with cancer that these people will know. But if they know just an iota of what I'm going through, maybe it will help them know how to be for those people that are unfortunately going to have to go through this too. And then, you know, I had a lot of friends write me and say, thank you for posting that thing about radiation. My mom, she went through breast cancer, but she was so private about it. And we had no idea how to help her, what she was even going through. And I think it's like an older generation thing. Like, let me just like suffer this by myself or you kids don't need to know about what I'm going through. And so a few friends wrote me to thank me just to say like, thank you. Cause now I feel like I understood what my mom went through. It was like a twofold thing. Here's a way to update my friends, but also to feel like, okay, this is a way to help you understand what I'm going through so that it'll help you better understand what other people are going to go through. So there's a, what's mentionable is manageable component to what you're doing. Mm. Do you see that? Absolutely. Feeling alone. Uh, not having an outlet for magic or imagination, cultivating that on your own, creating community where you could share your humanity without kind of hiding. Yeah. And you did that for, I don't know, however many hundred of us were following along and however many listen and or learn in other ways, like the memoir that you will surely write shortly. <laughs> <laughs> See how I did that? <laughs> oh man, maybe. I have like... <laughs> I have so many like unfinished journals during that time. But, you know, the stuff that I posted in these kind of like neat sort of digestible Instagram posts or Facebook posts. And, you know, because you write, you're a creator. When you watch these like movies or shows where there's like a montage of the writer being inspired and typing away, it's so not this like romanticized thing. You're like, how do I get this gobbledygook that's all a mess inside my brain? How do I get it, it to like a place or other people can read it and understand what the heck is going on in there, you know? And it frames it for you as well though, right? Because it helps you kind of create narrative around your own experience. It's true. Cause otherwise it's just moments of like pain and fear and anxiety, you know, just like, like you said, those like restless nights where I'm like closing my eyes right now feels like dying and I don't want to go to sleep right now. Mm. People want to say like, there's a reason for this. I'm like, but how come I'm here? And other people that I know who went through the same thing as me are not here. Is it because you prayed for me more? (laughs) Like, you know. I would say from my vantage point, and I don't know much, except I do think there's a reason you're here. That doesn't mean there's a reason they're not, right? I'm with you. I mean, I think it's evidence in your ongoing work. You're helping a whole bunch of people feel not outside, not like they have to keep their head down and be invisible. Yeah. I powerful. I, I, I get that you're humble and you're not thinking of it that way. And that's fine. Yeah. And that's cool. And that's appropriate. <laughs> but like, if you look at it in the aggregate, as I just did, cause I could look at your career, you know, for a couple hours, right. You see it differently. Mm. It's powerful and you're powerful. And it's a tremendous gift to those of us who get to be around it. It's bananas. I think it'll take the rest of my life to process this past year, just what it's meant the formation of Qigong came together insanely fast for Sesame yeah, Street. I, it usually takes like years yeah. to develop a new character. And this like literally came together in a couple months. We had had like a brainstorm at Sesame Street about like, well, the Asian American Foundation is wants to partner with us to do a special about Asian hate. Do we do a puppet? I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And that was like late spring. And then in the summertime, they said, okay, we're doing a puppet. You're the puppet. I'm like, what? You know? 
And so from, okay, we're doing this, to her design, to filming a special starring her was like a few months. It was the summer. And then we shot in September. We've both been a part of productions that you talked about for months or years that didn't even happen versus <laughs> this kind of situation, which speaks to the imperative, but also to what people can do when they really are connected to purpose, right? The reason that it came together so quickly and successfully was because the handful of Asian Americans who are at Sesame Street really pushed for our voices to be heard mm -hmm. in the process. And so that's Janet Kim, who produced it, who is a force of nature. Liz Hara, mm -hmm. who is mm -hmm. the writer and also pretty much the creator of the, the character Chi Young. And Alan Maroka, who plays Alan of Hooper Store, and he co-directed and starred in the special. Yeah, the pink shirt in the special. You got to ask him where he got it. That thing is so fresh. Every single shirt is handmade. Aren't they great? They're amazing. Amazing. I mean... So when I watched the special, which aired around Thanksgiving and P.S. Hello Macy's Day Parade. Oh my gosh, what I was mean, that? <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's Thanksgiving and I'm just like, yep, there she is, of course. I mean, you know, you know, life is like that though. You don't, I mean, I didn't find it too surprising except that it was incredible. All of this is surreal. I just don't understand yeah. why this is all happening. I just feel insanely lucky. I, I truly feel like who the heck else gets to... It's just like somebody knocked on your door and was just like, hi, you're playing for the Bulls now. And here's your multi-million dollar contract. That's how lucky I feel. I just like don't understand how this is all happening. But yeah, the parade, I truly in my mind <laughs> thought that Chi Young would exist for this anti-Asian hate special. And then that would be it. I, I really mm -hmm. thought that like they created this, you know, character to teach this lesson and maybe we would see her in the background sometimes, like at Sesame Street, but that's it. Come on. Yeah, I truly, no, I truly thought that. I mean, she came together so fast. Like, I didn't understand the scope of what the plans were for her. And so then I find out that I'm going to be on the float that year. I'm like, that's crazy. And then I find out it's the song <laughs> from our special, and she's going to be it. the center of it. I'm like, I, yes. we get there, and Matt, who's in Big Bird, I'm like, do you have any tips? Or is there anything I should know? Because you are pretty much like on the float with your arm up in the air, waving to people you cannot see because you're like down totally. below the rail. And then after like an hour and a half or whatever it is of waving, your arm like up yeah. in the air and your back and your arm are about to like give out. Suddenly you're on live TV <laughs> singing this song. Yeah. It's uh, a little bit scary, but really exhilarating. Everybody lives for it. It's such a positive feeling at the yeah. parade. The first thing when we were like getting in our positions or whatever, I'm like, do you have any advice? He's like, okay, well, not really. But I will say this, as you're going down Columbus Avenue or whatever, you'll look up and there will be people up in their balconies waving down to you and you will cry. I'm like, that's it? He's like, yeah, I just wanted, I just wanted to give you the heads up on that. And so every once in a while, we would like make a turn. And then like between like the slits of like the railing that we're hiding behind, you would see the depth of the crowd waving mm -hmm. and you're like, oh my gosh. And then you get in front of Macy's. We have monitors. That's how puppeteers work. As you probably know, we work off monitors. And the monitors turn on just as we are on live television. <laughs> so oh, oh, you are great. able to I see yourself it. for the first time when you're oh. on live television. And then the yeah. song kicks in 
and my arm is about to die, but you just, you just push through it and then it's over. And then you just go home. Right before Thanksgiving was when uh, Ji Young debuted on the Today Show. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then she was on the Thanksgiving float. And that was the same day that her special aired. My phone did not stop buzzing for a month yeah. straight. I yeah. never experienced anything like it. And yeah, there were a couple like naysayers, <laughs> a lot of conservative news. Um, yeah. You know, we'll yeah. find anything to pick apart. Honestly, though, it only validated the need because yeah. like so yeah. much of what yeah. they were saying was so racist. And we're like, and this is why we do it, you know. But mm -hmm. the overwhelming mm -hmm. response was so incredibly humbling. I don't think I could figure out the words. Like we were talking about, it's this growing up feeling somewhat of another in your own country or feeling like you're mm -hmm. not of the country that you have only known as home. And then being that representation for other kids and not even just for the kids, but their right. parents feeling like, oh my gosh, we're finally mm -hmm. seen and accepted. It's crazy. And it means so much to them. I don't know. In my own mind, I'm so... Uh, like, I just like want to hide. <laughs> like, I never want to give myself credit. I very much suffer from imposter syndrome. I never feel like I deserve to be anywhere that I am. I, I always downplay myself no matter what I do. And this past year has been like a really good year career-wise for me, puppetry-wise. I got to work with like Aquafina. I like worked on Helpsters. Yeah, I need to get to that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that was a whole other thing. But these weren't instances of me eking by or just like getting in based off a friend of a friend. It, it was like things that were lauded and appreciated. And it was because of what I brought. And I kept downplaying and finding holes. But this and but, oh, this was terrible. And I could have done this better. And my husband's like, you can't do this to yourself. Like, can you just take credit? And so yeah. I think for this Jiang stuff, I don't even cry talking about it, but it's just like truly me and Janet and Liz and Alan, we really advocated for ourselves, for our voices to be heard. And so oftentimes as a puppeteer or as an actor, any kind of performer, you're there to be the soldier. You're handed the script. You're there to deliver that product. But this is like one of those cases where we really advocated for our voices and therefore it felt like a lot of us was in that special and a lot of my experience as a Korean American, as an Asian American in the States was put into her. A lot of my humor, my spunk is like me. It's my daughter. I put that into her. Mm -hmm. And to have that be wholeheartedly accepted from the Asian American community, it was a weird cognitive dissonant moment for the first time. I couldn't say, eh, it's, but it's not me. It was somebody else. It was me and it was being embraced and and. I was like, I'm speechless because like, I don't know how to say, wow, thank you. Or, you know, like, I don't know how to accept this experience and my part in it. It's wild. But the stories coming out of it are incredible. Like, I, there was this one woman who wrote to Sesame mm -hmm. Street and her name is Chiang also. Mm -hmm. And growing up, her teachers could never pronounce it. She would get made fun of. And so she just started telling people, just call me Michelle. And in fact, when she was an adult, she legally changed her name to Michelle because she just thought, well, this is just how I fit in. This is how I belong. This is how I'm American. And now that there is like a character whose name is Chiang and everybody calls her Chiang and she is accepted and loved and she is a friend on Sesame Street it was incredibly meaningful to her. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, so many stories of like people telling me about their kids, like pointing to the screen, pointing to Chiang and pointing at themselves or saying, well, she looks like me. 
to have a Muppet, which is a very American institution Mm -hmm. on Sesame Mm -hmm. Street, which is an American established institution, is validating in a huge way. And it's incredible that I get to be a part of it. I don't understand it, but I'm grateful and I'm here to do the work. You know, so much of life is just showing up, right? I just found this quote um, from Fred, not 48 hours ago. And it's weird because it's unusual that I find a quote of his that I don't know. In essence, he says that he thinks we imagine and create to fill a gap. And that gap, or part of it might have been that sort of sense of inclusion and identity and sort of your full humanity. And the more, Kathy, you've expressed your full humanity, the more the world has said, more of that, please. Chiyoung is like, it's not my own creation. Of course, it was I understand, Sesame yeah. Streets. It's a huge team. And it goes back to community because my husband, he pushed for it and he's mm-hmm. like, here, I'll help you with it, you know? Or my first teacher, David Bino, for that like puppetry for improv class, he saw something in me. And so he took me on gigs and I would be his assist on like projects that he was working on. It took being part of a community to feel supported enough to go for this. You've done a lot of appearances with Chi Young where you're not scripted, right? The Today Show and so forth, or the NPR interview with Michelle Martin. How do you think through the character if you're in those scenarios? Is she so part of you that you can script lines that feel authentic? Do you have like backstory and all that stuff? How do you think of her? I'm still trying to figure that out myself. I think everybody has a different approach to how they embody their characters. A lot of the characters that are on Sesame Street right now are legacy characters who have been grandfathered in. No one is playing their original character. And so at least for those, they're trying to emulate while bringing a bit Mm -hmm. of their Mm -hmm. own interpretation. Mm -hmm. For me, this is like a brand new character. And back when I was growing up in Sesame Street, the characters were allowed to be a lot lot more neurotic (laughs) and we're allowed to have feelings, but we're all super stoked about everything. You know, everybody's just like happy and excited and they get along. So I'm trying to find how to make Chi Young feel more specific. There's like definitely ways to make her feel more like a kid, but what makes Chi Young like an individual? We're still getting to know each other. The scripts have such like a specific purpose that sometimes quirks are more brought out by the puppeteer than they are the writers sometimes. And so I'm trying to figure that out myself. Where I start with her is that she's definitely a lot more confident than I am. She's definitely a lot more proud of her Korean heritage than I was when I was like five or six. She wants to share it because she's so stoked about it. But then there's obviously things that are just me, like the way that she delivers lines. She's like very straightforward (laughs) in a way that my daughter is. (laughs) I'm just trying to figure out how to channel my spirit into her, but just in like a spunkier, younger, more confident way. And I'm guessing maybe that that will be reciprocal, that some of that confidence and spunk might just uh, creep its way back into your day-to-day in a way that maybe it hasn't. Oh, I or hope maybe so. Maybe it has already. Maybe yeah. it has already. When I was in high school, we took these standardized tests on computers to try and tell you what you would do, right? And I got puppeteer. I mean, I remember it clear as day because I've used it my whole life when I tell people about like how I kind of found my way to a career. What? So Fred's, Yeah. So Fred's a puppeteer. Susan Lin from our film was a puppeteer, right? You're a puppeteer. I just made friends with this woman who animated a music video for me named Audra Brandt. She's a puppeteer. I feel like suddenly I'm surrounded by puppeteers. But what I want to know from you is, 
especially someone who is growing into the role, but certainly doing the work, what is the secret? What is the relationship between our body and that body? What, what's happening for us as viewers in the experience of puppets that is different from actors? What have you learned and discovered? Oof. I saved the easy ones for last. <laughs> Ooh, that's a deep one. P.S. I noticed this shirt. God bless you. are the best. I love this shirt. I got this shirt, by the way, this Mr. Rogers Neighborhood shirt in Pittsburgh when I was oh. puppeteering on the movie with Tom Hanks. Of course you were. Yeah. I didn't even ask about it. Yeah. Oh I was there for a day in a scene that was cut and not even featured on the bonus scenes. Like <laughs> <laughs> I was about waist high to Tom Hanks and Chris Cooper <laughs> for like Incredible. an entire evening, which was Incredible. amazing. Tom Hanks is like everything you want him to be. He's like kind and generous and hilarious. The more I do puppetry, the more I realize that there is a thinner and thinner line between puppetry and acting. It is acting. And I I never considered myself an actor, but there is something where you have to kind of delve into the humanity of a script to make it feel real. You hear stories about how other puppeteers sort of like learn. And sometimes they'll just like observe people on the subway Mm. because it's so, it's not just about matching the lip flaps to the syllables of what you're saying. It's the gestures. It's the looks. The number one thing with puppetry and making a character look like it's alive is eye focus. Mm. Are they Mm -hmm. looking at the thing that they're supposed to be looking at? Whether it's the person that they're talking to or the thing that's stealing their attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And from that, you know, you get other stuff, just gestures, the way that you would hold yourself if you are confidently saying something or if you were, were not so sure about it, or if you were being angry and, or, or if you were saying it with love, you know, you say the same words, you could flap the same amount of flaps, but it's like <laughs> the gesture of like how you would hold yourself. Some of the best puppetry that I've seen involves no words where you mm. really can see the humanity of the character and just the way that like it moves and it carries itself. There's something really beautiful about being able to animate an inanimate object <laughs> in real time. Mm-hmm. And it's not as it's 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 more tangible, it's more immediate than say animation or filmmaking. You have like full control and it's it's immediate. And there's something really magical about that. It's a magic trick combined with voice acting and regular acting. Fred said something about puppets being able to say and do things that he couldn't. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that resonates with you. I think so. I never thought of myself as an actor, but put a puppet on my hand. Suddenly I'm able to, like for the Aquafina thing, it was the most freeing puppetry that I've <sighs> oh ever God. done yeah. because I couldn't Hilarious, see any, yeah. I didn't have a monitor. I didn't get playback. I could barely see. And I'm just head to toe covered in this purple nightmare monster. And it was incredibly freeing. I was like, suddenly you could just like, like live full out. Like being able to sort of concentrate that into something that takes the focus away from you is so freeing. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you look like or if you are white or Asian or black or um, what gender you are, you can be anything without judgment. And that's special. We forget 
what it's like not to be able to reach the light switch. We forget about the monsters that seem to live beneath our beds at night. Kathy remembers though, and she reminds us as Fred Rogers once did that those memories are still there somewhere inside of us and can sometimes be brought to the surface by events, sights, sounds, or smells. Children can never have grown-up feelings, he said, until they've been allowed to do the growing. Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com and please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Lifelong friends.